So uh, pretty much of an honor to get to introduce our next speaker. Actually, Father Andrew's been in their hearing confession. He's the one that carried Jesus during our Eucharistic procession, so I think that was a special blessing. But it is definitely an honor to enter, uh, introduce Father Andrew Klein. He's the associate pastor at St. Thomas More Church in Kansas City, and let's give him a Springfield warm welcome. If you don't mind, I think we should begin with prayer. And I would like us to aim this prayer towards St. Joseph, the chaste spouse of the Blessed Mother and the foster father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our own spiritual father. So, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O great spouse of the Blessed Mother and foster father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of all men of all creation, it was you that was chosen by our Heavenly Father and through the Holy Spirit to be the spouse of the Blessed Mother and the Father for our Lord. It was you to whom the angel came at night to take Mary into your own home. It was you to whom the angel sent the message of God, entrusting their safety and their care to flee from the tyranny and murderous intent of King Herod. And it was you that was entrusted to bring Our Lady and Our Lord back to us, that Our Lord may continue His earthly ministry and carry out His salvific work for our souls. Trusting in You as our Father and Spirit trust in You, we offer this retreat and this prayer to You. Please guide this talk and please guide this time so that all that we think, say, and do may be led in deeper relation and love to Our Lady and to Our Lord. And please help us to rely on You as the Holy Family relied on You, that we may never stray far from our Father's love, be protected from every assault of the evil serpent, and be drawn ever closer into greater relation with our Heavenly Father, through our Blessed Mother and our Lord Jesus Christ, in the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit. And so entrust you, great St. Joseph, we pray, O most chaste spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, my spiritual Father, and beg your protection. To you do I come, before you I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O foster Father of the Redeemer, Despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. O most sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, uh, a quick point before we begin. Uh, I do this almost at all the talks because I amuse myself too much. But in humility, a quick definition of heresy. I know, great, and we're starting with heresy. So there's material heresy and there's formal heresy. Material heresy is I know the truth, I know what is right, I know what is just, I know the truth given to us from God, and in human error, I accidentally speak contrary to it, behave contrary to it, etc. So a really good example I know the truth that Star Wars Episode Five is the best Star Wars movie that's not even a competition, but I accidentally tell you that it's like Episode Nine or Episode Three or, or what have you. Formal heresy is that I know the truth 
and I intentionally act opposite of it. I intentionally oppose it. So I know that Star Wars Episode 5 is the best, but I go and I promote to others that it's actually Episode 8, which we will spend many years in purgatory making up for. That movie is so bad. I make this clarification because should I unfortunately fall to error, please give me the benefit of the doubt that it's material heresy and not formal heresy. But by God's grace and Holy Spirit guidance, it will all be in accord with our Lord and his church. The talk today is on the wedding feast of Cana, and more specifically to Our Lady's instruction to the servants at the wedding feast of Cana, and how that is Our Lady's instruction to us to do whatever he tells you. To get to that point, I think our Lord wants us to first recognize or briefly reflect upon two points to lead into it. The first is mystery, that we in the Catholic Church define over and over several aspects of our faith and the doctrines and the teachings as a mystery. The Eucharist is a mystery. The Incarnation is a mystery. How Patrick Mahomes is able to do what he does is a mystery. But we don't define mystery in the sense of like Scooby-Doo and the Scooby gang are going over to solve another mystery. And they've got like the Eucharist tied up and they're like, let's see who's behind the Eucharist. And they pull the mask off and it's Jesus. And he just starts quoting John 6 in the Last Supper, I am the bread of life. We mean mystery in that it's an unexhaustible resource of our Lord's nature, love, and grace that we can never exhaust our understanding and our appreciation and our depth of growing in both of those with whatever the mystery is. Father Ricardo beautifully describes mystery as like a diamond that is held up in the light. And every time you just rotate the diamond in your hand, the light shines differently and more beautifully through the diamond that you catch a different aspect of that wonderful gem's craft that you didn't know previous rotation. The same thing with mysteries of the church, that mysteries, be it the Eucharist, be it the Incarnation, all of it is a greater indication, an invitation from our Lord that there's still more to know. And there's still more to delve into. It's one of the great beauties of heaven is that God is eternal. He is inexhaustible. We will never be bored because for eternity, there will always be more and more and more and more to know about he who is the greatest good. But one of the other aspects of mystery is that we understand mystery to mean that we would never have figured it out on our own. We would never have had the ability to come to knowing this if God hadn't first revealed it to us. So we can figure out through reason alone that there is one God and only one God. People were doing that centuries before Jesus ever shows up in the incarnation. But the Trinity, for instance, is something we would never be able to fathom and come to fathom without our Lord revealing to us, hey, God is triune three divine persons, one divine nature. And part of why that's important for us is because if that means we never would have been able to figure it out on our own, that means we had to be told it and revealed it to us. And the only one who's going to reveal that is the big guy himself. So God, for love of us, 
makes known to us all these things that were kept from us so that we can better know him and love him and eternally, inexhaustibly continue to know him and love him. And we know this to be true because the first and greatest mystery of the faith, of which all other mysteries are built upon, is the Trinity. That there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three divine persons, and yet one God, one divine nature. That the relation between the three is so beautifully entwined, the three are one. And we're made in that image and likeness. We're made in the image of perfect divine love. And we're made to enter into relation, an eternally deepening relation with he who is love. And so anytime we come across something that is difficult for us to understand, some tenet or teaching of the church, some hardship in our life, you name it, our Lord wants us to know that by the giving of the mysteries, anything and everything is invitation for greater love. That we're not meant to just be perpetually confounded and confused and just put up with it. It is our Lord going, this too, I can use as an avenue to bring you closer to me, to join our hearts to his. Be it suffering of this world, be it trying to grasp like the tenets and teachings of the church, being trying to grasp, that's actually Jesus, like literally, truly Jesus over there. It's all an invitation for love. The second thing I think our Lord wants us to note, and this is why we went, one of the reasons we went to St. Joseph, is that the first problem God ever has in all of human history is not sin. The first problem is the Las Vegas Raiders. But aside from that, thank you for the mercy laugh, aside from that, the first problem God ever has in all of human history is loneliness. Before sin even enters the picture, a whole chapter before sin enters the picture, the very first thing God has issue with when he looks at all of the splendor of creation is it is not good that man should be alone. And this is man, Adam, in paradise with God before sin. And yet our Lord, who knows himself to be more than sufficient for anything, we need nothing but him, sees Adam in his solidarity of human nature and says, it's wrong for you, bad for you, to be alone. So I make for you, from your side, Eve, your equal, that the two of you may become one, and that from you flows innumerable descendants. And again, part of why he does this, not just so that he'll have enough people to play football with, because you need 11 guys on offense and defense, but part of why he does this is that we're made in the image of God. And God is Trinity. God is, by his nature, relationship of love. And so if I am made in the image of he who is relation and love, I kind of need other people that have my same nature to enter into relation and love. I need a you, and you need me. One of the beauties of heaven is that heaven, by our Lord's description, is a home, a home with many rooms. It's not just going to be us and our Lord in isolated cells. We are going to be with each other as one huge family, at one grand wedding banquet. 
It's perfect love in relation between us and neighbor and us and our Lord. This is why he gives us the saints, not because that our Lord is somehow insufficient and he can't do it without the help of others, but that because a good, loving father wants his kids to kind of love each other, wants his kids to get along with each other, and wants them to have a lifetime of loving each other. So a good, loving father doesn't go, hey, son, I love you, but do everything you can to ignore your sister. A good, loving father is like, yeah, you guys are fighting. You're now going to wear that get-along t-shirt until you stop fighting because you're made for love and you're made for family. This is why we go to the saints. This is why we have such great devotion to our blessed mother because God made her our mother. And what great father would look at his kids and go, love me, but ignore your mom? Would not a great father instead go, I want you to love me, and part of how you love me is to love your mom? And so our second invitation, the first being everything is invitation for love, the second invitation is everything is invitation for accompaniment. God loathes loneliness. We are never meant to be alone. Even when Jesus goes alone to play Xbox and pray in the cave, by his own admittance, he's always with the Spirit and the Father. And with all, all the gospel readings we just heard this week is our Lord attesting to us that he does nothing apart from the Father and the Spirit. He's always in community. He's always in fraternity. He's always in relationship. The same is true for us. Everything we do and everything we endure is meant to be in relation with God and each other. And so whenever we come across something that would threaten us to feel alone, our Lord is trying to assure us with all confidence that's not how it's supposed to be. And that like a, a child that trips down the stairs and cries and runs for mom and dad, we're meant to do the same. We are always meant to be with others, and we're always meant to receive his love in everything, be it the hardships of this life, be it pursuing a greater life of faith. And our Lord wants these two things to be primary, because these are the two temptations, these are the two attacks that the devil makes against us. Well, I mean, we could boil down all the temptation, like name all the temptations and we'd be here all day of all the ways the devil tries to get at us. But in essence, there are two. The devil tries to get us to believe that God is either powerless or God doesn't love us. So that in believing those lies, we'll choose loneliness. We'll choose to be apart from the God who loves us and the family he's trying to provide for us. That the dragon then has easy prey that has chosen to broke apart from our Lord and from his church and from the family and protection and help he's always offering us. The devil wants us to believe those lies that we will choose then to not go home, to not enter into relation with our Lord, to not love one another, to not call the saints. If I don't believe you love me, why then would I spend any time with you or go to you or at all? So our Lord is always, always, always stressing to us 
how much he loves us. We're in an ocean of his love and that he never wants us alone, never wants us apart from him, never wants us apart from the saints, the angels, people here on earth. And if we ever feel anything to the contrary, that's not God going, yeah, I'm just sick of you. That's the devil who's been whispering in our ear that we've been listening to and following. And that's our red flag to know, hey, wait, I've gone away. Lord, come get me and bring me home. This is critical because what our Lord asks of us is very, very difficult and very, very hard. He asks us to imitate him. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son who came to die that we may live. And so if we're struggling to deny ourselves and pick up our cross, and the devil really doesn't want us to do that because he hates us and wants us to be as miserable as he, what better way to get us to not do it than to believe that God doesn't love us, this cross is malicious, and God is powerless and can do nothing with it. The same is true with our mother. And the same is true with what our mother says to us at the wedding feast of Cana. So it is of critical importance that before we get there, we just have, as best as we can in this brief time, unescapable confidence that our Lord loves us and our Lady loves us. And not in the love of, like, utilitarianism, I love you because you're useful. The love of a parent to a child. For those of you who are so blessed to be parents, when you're first carrying in your arms that young one, that newborn boy or girl, is your thought when you're looking at them going, I'll love you when you can mow the lawn. Like this nine months of pregnancy and all the money that this costs, you owe us some pretty good dividends. So the moment you're like useful and can actually start paying that back, then mom and dad are going to love you. But until then, we're just kind of putting up with you. No, you're like, I, oh my gosh, I love this kid. This kid can do nothing but cry, eat, and poop. And sometimes, all at the same time. It's kind of impressive. And yet, you don't care of how defenseless they are or how quote-unquote useless they are in being in, unable to do anything back. Simply because you are my kid, do I love you? Simply because you are my kid, am I bringing you home and now having my whole life revolve around you and that all that I am and all that I do in service to you? That's our God's love for us. He does not ask us to do things because he can't do them. He asks us to do things because he loves us. Mom and dad can do all the chores around the house better than us and faster than us and probably faster without us. But I want you to come learn how to fix the plumbing with dad because I, your father, want what's best for you. I want you to grow in this, to grow in knowledge, to grow in love. So join me in this task because this task is an expression of my love for you and what is good for you. This is God for us. And we see it over and over and over. What's one of the greatest expressions of love for another person? Humility. I make myself a servant to the other. 
how does our Lord express humility? He becomes a baby. He incarnates in human nature. He takes on the fullness of humanity in all things but sin. The Annunciation, the feast today, the solemnity today, is our Lord's expression of, I who am the eternal God, make myself a baby to serve you and love you. How does Our Lady, our mom, show us that she loves us? Well, one, she says yes. And she doesn't say yes because, hey, I will have a title that no one else is going to have, Mother of God. She says yes because she loves the Lord. Hey, behold the handmaid, whatever you say, I'm going to do, God, because I love you. And she loves us. And we know that she loves us because Mary, who is the mother of God, a title no one else is going to have, Mary, who is completely without sin, and we know this because one, the angel says so, and two, in the messenger of God, so infallible thereof, but two, the words that St. Luke uses to describe is keri katomene, which literally translates to having had no sin at the beginning, present, and all the way to the undeterminable end. So the angel of God himself is saying, Mary, you are full of grace. And we note that too because it's not Hail Mary, it's Hail full of grace. It's a title. This is you. Mary is without sin. Mary is the mother of God. And what is the very first thing she does the moment all of this is made known by the angel? She runs to the hill country to wait hand and foot on her elder cousin Elizabeth, who is a sinner and is pregnant. And she waits on her. She humbles herself and makes herself a servant. They love us. When Jesus is preparing to go to his crucifixion, and he has dinner with his friends, the Last Supper, they've just ordered pizza, they cracked open some Pepsi, it's been a wonderful dinner. One of the titles for the dinner is Eucharista, which is where we get Eucharist, which literally translates to Thanksgiving. And in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17, John is very detailed with the Last Supper. He, we get to see the words, the thoughts, the prayers of Jesus as he's preparing for the cross. And at the very end, in the 17th chapter, he moves his eyes up to God and he tells God the Father that all the apostles and all those God has put in his care, us, are a gift. And he says this, knowing we're going to kill him. We're complicit in his murder. He says this knowing that he is going to take on all the sins of all of humanity for all time innocently. And he has to do that because we done goofed so bad, we murder him. And looking at us, his murderers, he says, thank you for the cross, and calls us gift. That's his love for us. What does Mary do? What does mom do? Well, one, she knows it's coming too, because when this is announced in her Magnificat, she quotes Isaiah and the suffering servant. But two, when she goes to present our Lord at the temple, there's this weird old guy that's just kind of been hanging out there named Simeon. No offense, please don't hold that against me. And Simeon has the Holy Spirit dwelling upon him. And Simeon comes up to Joseph and Mary and says, Hey, look, the Messiah, I can finally rest. This is great. I am now assured that the Chiefs are going to win Super Bowls. 
And then he looks at mom and goes, your son will be a sign of contradiction that the hearts of many are revealed and you yourself, a sword shall cleave your heart. Your son is going to suffer and die for the hearts and the salvation of others. And you're going to share in it. You are going to be joined to that. This is coming from the Holy Spirit. Mary could have been like, I did the hard part. Joseph, he's yours. Peace, I'm out. Mary immediately then goes to the temple and offers our Lord and that sacrifice to God the Father because she loves God and she loves us. And that presentation is by its nature an act of thanksgiving where the family in gratitude for the gift of children God has given them give the kids back to the Father. It is a Eucharista. That is Our Lady's love for us. At the cross, while he's being murdered, and he's asphyxiating, and he's bleeding out from all the lacerations and all the wounds and the thorns and everything, Jesus begs for our forgiveness. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. In the heart of his crucifixion, he is begging God the Father to absolve us of our complicitness in his murder. That's how much he loves us. Can you imagine loving your enemy so much that as they're murdering you, you're crying out to God that they be forgiven? That's his love for us. And Our Lady, our beautiful mother, is at the foot of that cross and at the foot says yes for our salvation. She is watching us kill her son right before her eyes. And she is titled the co-redemptress of souls, redeeming us not apart from God, with. So great is her love for us. She says yes to the cross for our sake. And then when Jesus is raised and he comes back and he meets his friends who all but one abandoned him, betrayed him, denied him, ran away in fear, he greets them with wounds. His body is resurrected. He's glorified. Sin and death has no hold or no power on him anymore. He's perfect. And yet he decided, and it was a decision, to keep the wounds, to keep the pierced hands and feet and side. So much so that Thomas gets to put his fingers and hands in it. Because he's not ashamed of what he suffered for us. He's grateful. He's not ashamed of the love he's done for us. He's grateful. And he's so grateful that for all of eternity... He keeps the wounds, the proof of his love for us. That's how great his love is. And our blessed mother, who just watched us do this horrible thing to her son, she takes us home. 
She becomes the mother for the whole church. When the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost, there she is in the room at the birth of the church. She could have been like, yeah, I'm done with you. Like, I did my time. I said yes to the cross, but now that it's over, get out of my sight. And instead, for love of us, she says, I am so grateful to have you as my children. I said yes to you being my children at the cross And I continue to say yes to being your mother through all eternity. And here I am as the Holy Spirit comes upon the first apostles and the church blossoms and grows. This is the love they have for us. We need to understand that, or at least attempt to, because that's what the devil attacks, to get us to doubt, to get us to fear, to get us to despair, so that we'll move away. And it's all the more important when we get to the wedding feast of Cana, because what's happening at the wedding feast of Cana, aside from just party, it's a wedding. And man, they celebrated those weddings, those feasts for days, so it's one heck of a party. Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, son, they're out of wine, which is going to be a big faux pas and cause great humiliation and shame and hurt on what should be a very blessed time of family and friends and our Lord. And our Lord responds back with, Woman, why do you bring this to me? My time has not yet come. Now, our initial temptation, because the devil is a jerk and he hates Our Lady, is to view that response as like, man, Jesus is just like really rude to mom. We hear the word woman and we start thinking of the movie Incredibles, which is a wonderful movie. You guys should go watch it. But there's the scene where Frozone keeps shouting, woman, where's my super suit? And it's super disrespectful, but a little funny because it's a humorous movie. And we think the same thing, that our Lord is like being disrespectful to mom. But again, like full of grace, a title, woman is a title. And it was first given to Eve, the woman, the mother of all humanity. And Eve loses it when she says yes to sin. So our Lord, using this title, is dignifying and signifying to all of us, here's the new Eve, the new mother of everything. He is showing her the most profound of respect. And then two, my hour has not yet come. Again, Mary knows what's coming. She knows the suffering servant of Isaiah. She's had Simeon with the prophet of the Holy Spirit tell her what's up. And in case she's like, hey, English major, you have to have more than one source. The prophetess Anne comes up and doubles down on what Simeon says. She knows the cross is coming. Maybe not the precise how, but she knows the what and the why. And Jesus is affirming to her at this wedding, it's not time yet. We have had 30 years together. 30 wonderful, beautiful, private years of just us as a family, of just us being together in love. And there's still more time for that to happen. And if I do this, if I make this first public miracle, I take my first step on the road to Golgotha. Mom, you need to know this doesn't have to happen yet. God the Father's got them. The Spirit's got them. They're good. They'll get by. We can still have time as that family before I'm gone on the cross. And for love of us, mom turns to the servants and says, 
do whatever he tells you. She sends him to the cross, starts his first step, as all good mothers do for their children, for our sake. Could have had the time. How many mothers would want one more day, one more week, one more year with their kids? Could have had it. But sees us in need, knows we need him, gives him up, sends him for us. That's mom. That's mom for us. And that's our Lord for us. Over and over, the the whole of Bible, the whole of Scripture, the whole of human history is one big love letter from God to us, letting us know that in all of this brokenness, in all of this chaos, God's love is unconditional, unending, and unwavering. And Mary, wonderful mom, is the most beautiful and immaculate of all the saints, and so most beautifully and perfect by God's grace, reflects and mirrors that love. He is the sun, she is the moon, illuminating the love of God for all of us. And they want us to know it, and they want us to never forget it. And they especially want us to know it and never forget it, because this life is hard. Being in a family, being in love, is difficult. It comes with it the cross, and our Lord is not shy about letting us know that. And so one of the things that Our Lady tells the servants, and through them, us, do whatever he tells you, and we can struggle with that. One of the greatest tripping blocks of the faith is us. Like, let's be honest, it's us. Our hypocrisy, our sins, my hypocrisy, my sins. Hey, that guy is supposed to be in persona Christi, and he's a sinner. So, like, we are in many ways our own worst enemies to the faith. But one of the great stumbling blocks of the faith and our ability to love it and live it is the law, is all that God asks us to do. And he asks us to do a lot over and over and over and over. And we are all so often inclined and tempted to be like, yeah, not going to do it. I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to follow that and some of that, but none of that. And we justify it because we believe the lie of the devil. He doesn't love me. And how I know he doesn't love me is because the law he's asking me to do, I believe to be bad. And I would only believe it was bad if I didn't believe the one who gave me the law doesn't love me. And we know that's his law because he's not shy about telling us that it's his law. Hey, these are my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I have not come to abolish the commandments, but to fulfill them. All the law and all the prophets come down to love neighbor, love self. In John 1, hey, if you say you love God, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. In Jeremiah, I will write my law on their hearts over and over and over and over and over the Ten Commandments. God is like, yeah, this comes from me. The church and the church's priests and and scholars and theologians and saints did not invent the truth I give you. They steward what I have given them. This is my law. And he's very crystal clear of if you love me, truly, if you love me, keep it. And we so often don't. Because we don't believe he loves us. We believe it's bad for us and that it's good for our freedom to oppose it. The problem with all of that, apart from the side that it's his, 
and he's very clear, like, if you love me, you'll keep it. It's hypocritical. Because if we truly believed that, then every time our kids misbehave, not, I don't have kids, hypothetically, for the sake of the metaphor, for every time our kids misbehaved, we'd celebrate it. We would say, good job. Every time they stepped out of line, every time they broke a law, every time they were disrespectful at class, if we truly believed the law was bad, we would high-five them and go get them ice cream. We don't. We ground them. We discipline them. We chastise them. We correct them every time they break curfew. They refuse to do their homework and chores. They're mean to their siblings and their neighbors. Every time because we know the law is good for them. We know it's given for them. And it's given for them for three reasons. One, we want them to respect their stuff because they didn't earn it. They didn't buy it. They didn't go to Dave and Buster's and be like, I have 10,000 coupons, give me a bedroom and, and Batman action figures and comic books. It's gift. Mom and dad gave everything free of charge to the kid. And mom and dad want them to just understand how great a gift that is and continues to be. So clean your room and do your laundry and wash the dishes and mow the lawn, etc. Because if you don't, you'll take it for granted. You'll abuse and neglect the gifts of love we give you. And that's bad for you. It is bad for you to view the gifts of this world as something that can be abused and thrown away. One of the very first commandments God gives to Adam and Eve before the sin is to be stewards of all of creation, not dominion like tyrants, to safeguard and to keep. And we've heard from our great Pope, Pope Francis, over and over, he has a great devotion to the poor and to this world. Not because the world and the creation of the world is somehow more important than people, but because God from the beginning has been like, this is our home, and it's a free gift from God, and if you love what I have freely given you, you'll take care of it. You'll watch over it. If you truly care about your comic books I got you for a birthday, Father Andrew, you'll take care of them. The second reason we want them to have, you know, rules, we want them to love themselves. If a kid had his way, if I had my way, it would be Skittles and Starbursts every meal till I was sick. Can't do that. Because if I do that, one, it's going to ruin my appetite. Two, I'm going to be just like a frail blob of a thing. Uh, three, it brings about kind of diabetes and serious health problems that eventually become inescapable and then fatal. And so, hey, mom and dad, we love our kids. We kind of want them to love themselves. They need to live a life where they do. They need to live a life where their actions, their thoughts, their words, their behaviors, their habits respect them. And if you clean your room, then the one who lives in that room must be worth taking care of. If you eat your vegetables, then the one whose body those vegetables go into must be worth taking care of. If you do your homework, then the one who's doing the studying and the exams, it must be good for that person to learn, to grow, to be smart, to be wise. Mom and dad get nothing out of this. 
It costs them lots of money to send their kids to school. It costs them lots of time to get their kids to learn these habits. It's for them. Because we understand at a very early age, if you're not doing these habits young, you won't have them when you're old. And now I don't eat right. I don't take care of my home. I'm not respectful for myself, be it mind, body, or soul. I don't love me. And I am perpetuating habits that view myself as expendable, as just a thing to use and abuse and throw away. And mom and dad who cradled that young one in their arms and said, even though all you can do is cry, poop, and eat, I love you with all my heart. I want you to love you with all your heart so that no matter what the world throws at you, no matter what you go through, you never waver from, I'm worth loving. No matter how far I sink, no matter how bad I am, no matter what I do, I'm worth loving. And I won't believe it if I don't live it. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And if I am practicing habits that treat myself like a thing and degraded and diminished and just eh, do whatever, I am making permanent a mentality. I'm not a child to love with immeasurable, indiminishable human dignity and respect. I'm a thing to be used, abused for fleeting gratification and then discarded. What mom and dad, what loving parents want their kids to look at themselves in that way, to treat themselves in that way. So we give the rules, we give the law, so that you build habits, permanent habits of thought, word, and deed that you'll love yourself. And then finally, and not selfishly, mom and dad kind of want to be loved too. Mom and dad don't want to just have this negligent, far distant relationship like uh, the, in those robot battles. Hey, I'm behind the glass, robots out in the cage. Okay, kind of fun. There we go. You're getting a glimpse of what Father Klein likes to do for entertainment. Batman, Chiefs, robots. There we go. Mom and dad want a relationship, a lifelong relationship. I want you to be able to love me as much as I love you. And not because I want like the joy or the glamour or the, the pride of, ha-ha, I'm loved. Just because I love you. And I want you to have that relationship with me. And so I give you laws and rules and guidance because they help you to love me. If you don't respect the home I've given you, how can you respect the one who gave it? If you don't respect the life you have, how can you respect the one who gave it? If you don't love what's been freely gifted, how can you love the gift giver? And so those rules, those doctrines, those laws, do your chores and the like, are for the sake of love. That the child may grow to love mom and dad as much as mom and dad love the kid. If this is our approach to our children, why do we expect the Father in heaven to be any different? The rules are for us. Whether they are the rules regards to morality, and there's the big push right now in opposing or in promoting, be it abortion, homosexual acts, transgender acts, sexual immorality, being a Denver Broncos fan, they're all equally bad. 
be it pushes against why men are priests alone, if that's truly our Lord in the Eucharist, if Our Lady is truly worthy of veneration, be it just regular habitual sins we do, gossip, greed, lust, gluttony, you name it, when it comes to the rules, our approach out of selfishness and pride is, I don't want to do them, and our justification is the lie, they're bad, and they're given to me by someone who doesn't love me. Because if he loved me, he wouldn't ask me to do these rules which I hate. When it's actually the opposite. We're in an ocean of his love. And he wants us to be home with him forever, eternally. And he wants us to have a crystal clear understanding of how that happens. No father, no mother who loves their kids throws the keys to the car at the kid and says, figure it out, best of luck. They get in the car with them. They take them to a parking lot and draw, okay, here's the clutch, here's the steering, here's brake, here's gas. Too much gas, put the brake. They teach them through explicit instruction and accompaniment. And now I can drive. If we're doing that for driving, how much more important is our soul? Would not a loving father give us unmistakable, clear guidance? This is how we get to heaven. This is how we live an eternal life. This is how we love ourselves, love our neighbor, and love God. Again, all the law, all the prophets boil down to two. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Root for the Kansas City Chiefs. People always forget that one. They're for us. And the temptation is breaking free from habits that we've made permanent, habits opposing the law that God gives out of love, is difficult. It requires a new habit to take its place, a habit of virtue. And that is tough work, especially since we're really attached to whatever the bad habit is. Hey, I really like my gossip, or I really like, you name this, the immorality that we're attached to, or I really like my opposition to some doctrine or teaching. We have to put in the work to make the good habit permanent. But I'm not going to do that work if I don't believe it's good and I don't believe they love me. I'm going to stick to what I've got. And so our Lord from the get-go gives us himself in the Eucharist and gives us his mom so that we may never doubt his love, even when we don't understand it. I don't understand why mom and dad keep making me clean my bed or make my bed. I'm just going to get back in it in eight hours anyway. But I know they love me. And I know they want what's best for me. So until I understand it, every day I'll make the bed. And then later in maturity we go, ah, I got it. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus does the bread of life discourse, and he's clearly like, hey, you got to eat my, my body and or eat my flesh and drink my blood. He lets people leave. They turn away from him. And he turns to the apostles like, hey, will you leave too? And Peter's like, where else are we going to go? You've got season tickets to the chiefs. And, you know, the word of life, that too. They don't get it. They don't understand the Eucharist at that point. And the scripture is very clear. We went from one Passover at John 6 to another Passover at the Last Supper. There is bare minimum one year difference at maybe two, depending on how you do the mapping of the time of the apostles being told that by Jesus and the Last Supper. They don't understand it. But for love of him, I'm going to follow you. Even though following you means I am now accompanying someone that everyone else thinks is a cannibal and super weird and have abandoned, and I'm going to take that flack too. But I trust you. I love you. So I follow you. 
and I will do what you ask me to do because I trust you love me. And then Last Supper and Pentecost, ah, I get it. The Eucharist. And they go out to the world to ask others to do the same. Our journey to loving our Lord with our whole hearts cannot be separated from the faith and morals of the church, the great deposit of faith, cannot be separated from the doctrines and teachings of the church. And we know this because he tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That journey is difficult, but it's also one we're not meant to do alone. One of the great joys of parents is to teach their kids how to walk. And they've every stumble, every first step, every, hey, grasp my fingers, and one step and two step. And now we've gotten to a point where you can let go of my fingers, and hey, you did two steps by yourself, and now dad's over here, mom's over here. Here we go. Mom and dad aren't looking at their toddler going, why can't you drive yet, and being super upset and, and hateful. Mom and dad are rejoicing at every stumbled step at every moment it takes just to help their kid all the months and years to learn to walk. They delight in that time, even the bad of it, because they delight in their child. And so every moment spent with their child isn't a waste because what makes that time blessed is I'm with the kid I love. That's God with us. That he knows this is going to take time. He knows this is going to be hard. He knows that we're going to be fighting to let go of those sins and those attachments to sin. And he so loves us, he views that as a time worth having and doing. He delights in us because he loves us even when we sin, even in the bad. And so we circle back to the beginning that we are always at all time invited into love and invited into fraternity and most chiefly with our Lord and with our Lady that as we grow in relation we grow in trust the diving board is scary I don't want to do it but I jump because I trust my dad when he says he'll catch me and I trust him because I've spent all this time at home in relation with him, building that relationship. And so I do what is scary, I do what I don't want to do, because my love is greater than my fear, my love is greater than my lack of trust, my love is greater than my selfishness. That's our Lord's invitation, to grow in relation with him, that we say yes to this journey, to loving him with all our heart in the law, in the faith, in everything. And how does he give us that wonderful way to do this? Many ways, the catechism states, all things can be made prayer and all things relationship if we but give them to God, which means, hey, watching replays of Super Bowl 54 and 57, that's prayer, baby. He gives us himself that we can hold in our hands body, blood, soul, and divinity. And at every moment, I can come, come and be with him. Whether he's adorned in the monstrance, whether he's reposed, still God. 
still him. And I can do what all relationship is. I just spend time with the one I'm in love with. Share my heart. Receive heart. Even if what I'm sharing is grief or anger or resentment or I don't want to let go, when I share that, that's love. That's relationship. Do not married couples vow to love each other in the good and the bad. All can be prayer. So he gives us himself. And he gives us our mom. His mom. That as we pray that rosary, we're not just going through mindlessly, robotically. We're sitting with mom as she goes through the photo album of her son. And opening our hearts to her that we may share in his life and his heart and be directed by her who did it most beautifully and perfectly to grow in that love. If I am struggling to keep the faith and I'm struggling to keep God's law, all the doctrines, the teachings, you name it, what a beautiful indicator it is that my love can still grow, that I have not exhausted his love for me and the magnanimity of his love for the world. And what a beautiful invitation is it by our Lord that as we're struggling for each step towards him, towards heaven, to not do it alone, to have each other, to have the church, to have the saints and angels, to have him and our lady. And this is most chiefly done in him in the Eucharist and time with Our Lady through the Rosary. Love is the point of everything. It's what we're made for. It's what we're destined for. Love is relational. And if God really loves me, he's going to let me know how that relationship looks so I can live it beautifully and perfectly. And he does. He has. He continues to do so. The doctrines, the teachings of the church, inerrant by the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years and running, and he knows it's a struggle. He knows it's a fight. And he who loves us so mightily wants to do it with us and is inviting us to say yes. May we, may we turn to mom that she may help us say yes, that we may truly love our Lord with all our heart and then rejoice when we get to go home and hear the words we long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. The Lord be with you. May the blessings and graces of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you.